You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 268, The Battle of King's Mountain. In our last episode, the Overmountain men had assembled a force of about 1,400 Patriot militia who were moving in early October 1780 to confront the Loyalist militia under British Major Patrick Ferguson near Gilberttown, North Carolina. Despite having gathered a large number of militia, there were many reasons to think that this fight was going to go badly for the Patriots. These were largely untested militia. Most of these men were not from the immediate region and were not familiar with the locality. Some were from Virginia, some were from South Carolina, and many were from the frontier that is now Tennessee. They also had no food and supplies except what they carried on themselves. So any campaign that lasted more than a few days was going to make that lack of supplies a real problem. The obvious apparent commander of the army should have been General Thomas Sumter. But Sumter had left his army to go find South Carolina Governor John Rutledge, who had fled into North Carolina and had granted someone else overall command of the South Carolina militia. Sumter could not command his army until he got Rutledge's permission. So he had ridden off to go get that issue resolved. Instead, there was no single commander of this militia army. Various militia colonels, including Benjamin Cleveland, James Johnson, William Campbell, John Sevier, Joseph McDowell, and Isaac Shelby, operated as a committee trying to decide by consensus how to attack the enemy. Meanwhile, the British commander, Patrick Ferguson, heard about the enemy's approach. Fearing that the Patriots might have large numbers, he opted to move east where he could link up with General Cornwallis's army, which was at this time occupying Charlotte, North Carolina. When the enemy got too close, however, Ferguson moved up to some high ground at a place called King's Mountain. From there, he expected he could defend against any attack. Even if outnumbered, the Loyalists could hold out until General Cornwallis sent reinforcements from Charlotte, which was about a day's march away. On October 4th, the Patriot militia reached Gilberttown, where Ferguson and the Loyalists had their headquarters a few days earlier. The Patriots continued marching to Calpens two days later. They learned that Ferguson was only a few miles to the east and that his men were trying to link up with Cornwallis before they could catch him. The Patriots began a night march trying to catch up with their foe before the enemy could link up with the main British army. The night march did not go well. Local guides did not seem to know where they were going. The men got lost all through the woods. Many wandered off the small winding paths and found themselves in the middle of a dark woods. On top of all that, they endured a pouring rain. 
the men struggled to keep their rifles and powder dry for the expected battle. The column planned to ford a river, but found it too swollen and had to march miles out of their way to find another route. Shortly before dawn on October 7th, the army stopped its march to reassess and to send scouts to figure out where the enemy was. Enoch Gilmer volunteered to scout for the enemy, while the army caught a few hours of rest out in the open in the miserable rain. After some time, he returned to inform the leaders that they were still about 15 miles away from the enemy at Kings Mountain. The army began moving again, stopping only for breakfast, which consisted of raiding a local cornfield and eating raw ears of corn. Most of the locals in this area seemed to lean Tory, so they were little help. The commanders seized two local Tories and ordered them to guide the army to Kings Mountain or be hanged. As they got within a few miles, Colonel Williams of the Virginia militia spotted the scout Enoch Gilmer's horse in front of a Tory home. Gilmer had been pretending to be a loyalist looking to join up with Ferguson, so Williams decided to play into that lie. He entered the home with several of his soldiers, holding a noose and threatening to hang Gilmer as a loyalist. Gilmer was enjoying a breakfast with the two women of the home, and he played along too and begged for mercy. The men removed Gilmer from the home and took him far enough away to give his report without blowing his cover. The Loyalist women had sold some chickens to Ferguson personally the day before at his camp at Kings Mountain, so their information was pretty accurate and up-to-date. As the column approached, they captured a few more Loyalist scouts who were forced to give the locations of their pickets. They also captured a 14-year-old courier who Ferguson had sent with a message for Cornwallis to send reinforcements immediately. The boy informed his interrogators that Ferguson was wearing a checkered shirt over his red officer's coat. The Patriot officers decided on a simple plan. They were just going to surround Kings Mountain, which was really more of a wooded hill, and moved up toward the enemy from all sides at once. By the afternoon of October 7th, the Patriot militia had surrounded Kings Mountain. The attackers numbered about 900. They were facing about 1,100 loyalists who maintained the high ground. Again, there was no single American commander coordinating the attack. The attackers divided into eight separate units of a little over 100 men each. They took different positions all around the mountain and agreed that they would all advance at the same time. The top of the mountain, which was only about a 1,000 feet altitude at its highest point, was clear-cut, but the approaches contained a thick covering of trees and rocks. In the Loyalist camp on the top of the hill, Major Ferguson had not bothered to build any entrenchments or other defenses. He planned to rely on his trained militia and their use of bayonets to take out any attackers. Ferguson knew that the Patriot militia had no bayonets, and could not take a massed force of soldiers who were standing in line with their bayonets. In any direct confrontation, the Patriots would be compelled to give way. Ferguson saw the enemy approaching and organized his men into defensive positions around the camp. According to one account, he told his men, Unless you wish to be eat up by an inundation of barbarians, I say, if you wish to be pinioned, robbed, and murdered, and see your wives and daughters in four days abused by the dregs of mankind. In short, if you wish to live or deserve to live and better the name of men, 
grasp your arms in a moment and run to camp. The backwater men have crossed the mountains. If you choose to be pissed upon forever and ever by a set of mongrels, say so at once and let your women turn their backs upon you and look out for real men to protect them. Now, by this time in the war, there was no sympathy for those on the other side. There had been too many massacres, executions of prisoners, destroying people's homes and crops, and attacks on families for either side to accept trying to live together. One side had to die. The countersign the Patriots used that day was Buford, a reference to Colonel Abraham Buford, the commanding Continental officer's whose men had been massacred by the Loyalists after trying to surrender. It was a reminder to all that this was not about taking prisoners. It was about killing the enemy. The advance up the mountain began about 2 p.m. The attackers let out a blood-curdling high-pitched war whoop similar to that used by native warriors going into battle. It was also a forerunner of the so-called rebel yell used by Southerners during the Civil War. These excited war whoops unnerved the Loyalist defenders, but they held their lines. As William Campbell's Virginia militia advanced toward the summit, Ferguson ordered his Loyalists to charge them with bayonets. As I said, the attackers had only rifles with no bayonets, and they quickly withdrew to the bottom of the mountains with the Loyalists chasing them. The Loyalists then had to pull back up the mountain because of advances led by Isaac Shelby coming from the other side of the mountain. Ferguson's loyalists then ran a bayonet charge against Shelby's men, forcing them to back down the mountain as well. Now, Ferguson had hoped that once his loyalists had chased the enemy down the mountain, that the men would continue to run away, just as they had at the Battle of Camden. That, however, did not happen. As soon as the loyalists withdrew from the attack on Campbell's patriots, they simply reassembled and advanced again. When the Loyalists went after another group of attackers, they could chase them away, but only temporarily. They could not chase the men too far, or the attackers would become isolated from the main force of defenders and leave themselves vulnerable. For most of the next hour or so of fighting, the Loyalists were just pushing one group of patriots down the mountain, then returning to push another group only to have the first group reform and start back up the mountain. Ferguson was correct that the Americans would not fight the Loyalists in a straight hand-to-hand -hand battle. They would get close enough to use their rifles to pick off the Loyalists from a distance, pull back when attacked, then return, taking cover behind rocks and trees to resume their shots at the enemy. The men who were fighting one another had been friends, neighbors, even family before the war. They knew each other well. If anything, that only seemed to increase the bitterness they felt for one another. One Patriot soldier, Thomas Robertson, reported hearing someone calling his name. When he poked out from behind a tree, a rifle bullet nearly hit him. He saw that his neighbor had called to him from the Loyalist lines in an attempt to get him to expose himself and be killed. Instead, Robertson returned the shot, mortally wounding his neighbor. Isaac Shelby recalled seeing two brothers take aim at each other from opposite sides of the lines. Both fired at the same time and both fell, presumably killing one another. There were numerous stories of brothers shooting at their brothers or men targeting those they knew on the other side. 
Although the Patriots tried to avoid hand-to-hand combat, there were times when it was inevitable and the fighting grew fierce. Many Patriot riflemen got close enough to fire on the Loyalist camp, decimating their ranks. They also killed a number of civilians in the camp. Ferguson had a woman with him named Virginia Sal. She was killed by a rifle bullet while in camp. After about an hour of this fighting, the Loyalists realized they could not chase off the rebels, that they were increasingly becoming sitting ducks for the Patriot riflemen who were surrounding the camp. Several units tried to surrender, only to have Major Ferguson knock down their flags and order them to continue fighting. Eventually, Ferguson also realized that the battle was not going to go in his favor, and he had no interest in trying to surrender. Instead, he and a few of his officers mounted horses and tried to rush through the enemy lines to make their escape. As he did, numerous Patriot rifles targeted him and shot him off his horse. He was later found to have been hit at least seven times. Then, after falling off his horse, he was thought to be immediately killed, but his body was caught in the stirrup and dragged by the horse for some distance. After Ferguson's death, the Loyalist defenders did not last much longer. A few minutes later, the second-in-command, Captain Abraham de Peaster, agreed to surrender. Some of the attacking patriots were not ready to accept a surrender and continued to fire on the enemy anyway. Several patriot officers reported having to ride up and knock the guns out of the hands of their own men to force them to stop firing on the surrendering enemy. Just as things were getting under control, a Loyalist foraging party that had been away from camp during the battle returned and opened fire on the Americans. At this point, they killed Colonel Williams. Many Patriot soldiers thought that the prisoners were trying to rise up again, and they just opened fire on their prisoners, shooting them dead where they lay. Once again, the officers had to put a stop to this killing. Once the firing stopped, there was still a need to deal with the surviving Loyalists. About 150 had been killed, with another 163 wounded, and the majority, 668, taken prisoner. The Patriots had lost only 28 killed and 60 wounded. Many Loyalists, both dead and living, had their property taken from them, including their clothing. Many were handled roughly and even beaten. Many of the dead were buried in shallow mass graves. The wounded Loyalists were often simply left where they lay, dying slowly from blood loss or lack of water. Over the coming nights, wolves and wild dogs feasted on the corpses and the badly wounded men who were left on the field. For months afterward, many of the locals refused to eat hogs from the area because it was believed they had also feasted on the corpses of men left on King's Mountain. For the prisoners who were still able to travel, many did not fare much better. After having their shoes and coats taken, they were marched over 40 miles without any food. The lack of food was a problem for both the prisoners and the victors, many of whom had not eaten for several days. And during the march, the Patriots continued to assault, abuse, and even kill some of the prisoners. The Americans managed to capture a cache of muskets on Kings Mountain, and they forced each prisoner to carry two muskets, with the fire locks removed, of course, during the march to prison. A week after the battle, during the march away from Kings Mountain, 
the Patriots also decided to hold trials for some of their prisoners, accusing them of treason, deserting from the Patriot militia to join the enemy, and other crimes. The court-martial found 36 prisoners, mostly Loyalist officers, guilty, and began hanging them three at a time. After the executions of nine of the prisoners, other Patriot officers put a stop to these executions, in part because they needed to get moving again after hearing rumors that Colonel Tarleton's British cavalry was on its way to intercept them. The march continued up to Salem, North Carolina. Along the way, more than a hundred of the prisoners escaped. Many made their way to Charleston or to Fort 96, where they rejoined Loyalist units. A few unlucky prisoners attempted to escape, but were captured and then executed. Eventually, the force reached Salem by early November, where the remaining prisoners were held. Following the destruction of the Loyalist Army under Ferguson, General Cornwallis determined that his position in Charlotte, North Carolina, was simply untenable. The hostility that his occupation army continued to face when it ventured outside of town, and the inability to recruit any new Loyalist militia in North Carolina after the loss at Kings Mountain, meant that the presence of the British in North Carolina was only going to subject them to further attack. The British evacuated Charlotte and began a 70-mile march to the small town of Winsboro in South Carolina. During the march, through a cold and near-constant rain, Cornwallis himself took ill and had to be carried in a wagon full of straw. He wasn't alone in that cart, Six of his other top officers had also grown deathly ill and were in there with him. Within a few days, five of them were dead. Cornwallis, however, managed to regain his health and resume command. Instead of continuing his advance into North Carolina, Cornwallis opted to secure his position in South Carolina for the rest of the winter. Even though there was no longer an organized Continental Army in North Carolina, the local hostility had proven too difficult to overcome. Concerned that even a defensive position in South Carolina would prove a tempting target for attack, Cornwallis ordered General Alexander Leslie, who was engaged in a series of raids in southern Virginia, to stop his raids and sail down to Charleston, South Carolina, to support British control of that colony. Leslie did not want to end his successful raids along the Chesapeake, which he had only really begun, but after confirming with General Clinton that he needed to follow Cornwallis's orders, Leslie complied. However, given delays in communications and Leslie's initial reluctance, he didn't reach Charleston until mid-December. Back in New York, British General Henry Clinton didn't receive word of the loss at Kings Mountain until sometime in November, Clinton later criticized Cornwallis for moving into North Carolina without proper support and for giving the rebels a victory that would bolster their morale and damage efforts to recruit more Loyalist militia. For the Americans, the victory at Kings Mountain put an end to any immediate threat of further British offensives into North Carolina. General Thomas Sumter returned to the militia army with orders from Governor Rutherford giving him undisputed command over the South Carolina militia. But since his chief rival, Colonel Williams, had been killed at Kings Mountain, the pre-battle dispute had been rendered moot anyway. Most of the Overmountain men returned to their homes on the frontier. Indeed, many of them had even left before the army got their prisoners to Salem. 
The men had marched and fought without food and supplies. Many were sick and on the verge of starvation. Despite the victory, they were eager to return home for the winter. So once again, neither side had much of an army in North Carolina. It would be several more months before the Continentals would send a new commander to replace Horatio Gates. General Nathaniel Green would not take command until December. Next time, we're going to head back up to New York, where the Loyalists and Iroquois continue to fight for control of the Hudson Valley. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard, and 10 Crucial Days, which runs tours related to the 10 days between Washington's Crossing and the Battle of Princeton. Go to 10crucialdays.org for more details. Thanks also to Jason Van Heusen for a one-time gift via PayPal. We're less than a month away from the April 15th, 2023 event at Washington's Crossing, Pennsylvania. You'll have a chance to meet me there, as well as several other authors of American Revolution-related books, at the Authors' Congress of the American Revolution. There will be several great panel discussions, including one with Selena Baker and myself about General Nathaniel Green. As I've mentioned before, we've lined up sponsors for this event, so it is completely free for you to attend. I hope to see you at Washington's Crossing on April 15th. Also, don't forget about History Camp Valley Forge coming May 20th. I will also be speaking there, along with dozens of other great speakers. For either event, you can visit my website, www.amrevpodcast.com, for more details. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my mailing list so you won't miss out on future live events. Now this week, we covered the Battle of Kings Mountain, which some historians argue was the key to the entire Southern campaign. It certainly halted British momentum and gave the Continentals time they desperately needed to regroup under General Nathaniel Green. As I said in the main episode, this battle really could have gone bad for the Patriots. 
the lack of a single leader, and the use entirely of militia who were untested in battle was usually a recipe for disaster. Now, of course, although these men were untested in traditional battles, many of them had lived on the frontier, where they got more than enough experience fighting with the Cherokee and other native tribes. So it's not like these men had never been in a fight before, but they were not used to fighting traditional battles as soldiers. Now, in the end, I guess this worked out to the Patriots' benefit. Major Ferguson was correct that his advantage of men with bayonets should have won the day in any hand-to-hand fighting. Typically, when riflemen are chased away by bayonets, they don't come back for more. But these men were nothing if not tenacious fighters, and they all knew that running away would only mean the enemy would appear next on their farms. Each of the separate units continued to attack over and over again, using their rifles to decimate the Loyalists. I also got to note that it's a bit ironic that the inventor of the Ferguson rifle did not have enough decent rifles for his army when he needed them most. Ferguson also made a huge mistake by not building fortifications. If he had, his men could have taken cover and forced the Patriots to charge in for hand-to-hand combat, and this might have been much more difficult for the attackers to do. Ferguson, however, simply assumed that if he attacked aggressively, the enemy militia would run, and that did not happen. The refusal to accept surrender and the abuse and even murder of prisoners after the battle is seen as horrific by modern standards, but both sides had engaged in it throughout the campaign, and it's at least understandable why it happened. There is some reporting that after the battle, Patriots stripped Major Ferguson's body and urinated on his naked corpse. The stripping probably happened, but the urination is doubtful. The reason I say this was that the source of this claim came from Colonel Bannister Tarleton, who wrote about it many years later. Tarleton, of course, was not at Kings Mountain and therefore not a witness. He could have heard it from men who were there, but since several officers who were there talked about other abuses and did not bother to mention the desecration of Ferguson's body, I find it unlikely. They almost certainly would have reported it if they had seen it. Kings Mountain is also another example of an ongoing problem that the British faced throughout the war. If British forces remained together in a large city, they could hold it, but they could not control the countryside. They could not recruit Loyalist volunteers and assure the population that they were in control of an entire colony. When they did go out, like they were at Kings Mountain in smaller outposts, they created an invitation for attack. There are quite a few books specifically about Kings Mountain, and I've included at least a half dozen of them at the bottom of my blog. There's actually a new one that's going to be released in a couple of months, but I've been warned by people that I respect that this author is not very good. So even though I've included it for a reference on my blog, I'm not going to recommend it. The book I am recommending is The Battle of Kings Mountain, Eyewitness Accounts by Robert Dunkerley. Some have criticized this book for not having a good narrative style, but it covers the battle through numerous pension records and other first-hand accounts, meaning it can sometimes get a little repetitive. But I think the sources for this book are among the best you're going to find. Dunkerley, the author, has written a number of books and is a park ranger at the Richmond National Battlefield Park. So if you want to understand this battle better, I'd recommend The Battle of Kings Mountain Eyewitness Accounts 
by Robert Dunkerley. My online recommendation is an older book called King's Mountain and Its Heroes, History of the Battle of King's Mountain, October 7, 1780, and the Events Which Led to It, by Lyman Draper. This is a pretty thorough retelling of the battle in context. The book was written in 1881 by the head of the State Historical Society of Wisconsin. Because of its age, it's available to read or download on archive.org. As always, I've included links on my website. Also, on my blog, I've included a great many other older books and websites about the battle, so feel free to peruse those if you want to learn more. My question this week asks, how much blame, if you believe the British were in the wrong, was King George III for the U.S. Revolutionary War, given he was a constitutional monarch and Parliament was supposed to be the lawmakers slash decision makers? What should or could he have done? Well, I see many questions like this, which are critical of the blame being directed at the king because, well, British monarchs are only figureheads by this time, and Parliament should be to blame for policy failures. I disagree with that premise. King George III did take an active role in government. He allowed Parliament and his government to make most of the policy, but he did lobby them rather heavily at times. He prevented certain people from becoming Prime Minister and prevented others from resigning. Many in Parliament commented during the war that the king was acting as his own Prime Minister. The reality is that colonial wrath was directed only at Parliament through 1775. The Continental Congress hoped that the king would step in and negotiate a compromise once blood was shed. Instead, the king backed Parliament 100%, giving a speech calling on them to crush the rebellion militarily. Many years later, John Adams credited the king's actions in late 1775 with being the single greatest motivator in pushing colonial public opinion in favor of independence. Now, if the king had gone a different route and, say, responded to the Olive Branch petition by sending a commission to America to broker a compromise, he would have been hailed once again as the defender of English liberties, and the colonies would have happily remained under his rule. Also, later in the war, many top political leaders saw the war as hopeless and wanted to negotiate a settlement so they could focus on fighting with Spain and France. The king, however, remained hawkish and wanted to prosecute the war more aggressively. He pushed for military and political leaders who shared this view in order to keep fighting the war long after most of Britain had given up. At some points, we even see direct criticism of the king by people of London because he's doing this, and that was something that was extremely rare and technically could have constituted the crime of treason. So to me, it seems that King George III's personal involvement led to the real outbreak of the war and independence and its continuation long after it should have ended. It's the result of King George III's active involvement in failed policies that convinced his successors to be more like George I and George II and not take even a behind-the-scenes role in policymaking. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast.
For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.